This is Backstory with us, the American History Guys. I'm Peter Onuf, 18th Century Guy. I'm Ed Ayers, 19th Century Guy. And I'm Brian Ballow, 20th Century History Guy. Hundred fifty years ago this April, the first shots were fired in the American Civil War. In less than four years, more than 600,000 Americans would die, the equivalent of six million people today. And the largest and most powerful system of slavery in the world would grind to a screeching halt. Now, if you were to travel back in time to the months or even weeks before that April of 1861, and you were to tell people that this was what they could expect in the near future, chances are they would think you were crazy. As much as they might have wanted that outcome or dreaded it, it just didn't seem possible that such a thing could happen in the 19th century. After all, politicians had been cutting deals about slavery going all the way back to the very founding of the country. It's hard not to see things in hindsight when we think about the Civil War. To see it as a conflict that just had to happen, that was predestined, to understand its causes based on our knowledge of its results. But for the rest of the hour today on this special Civil War edition of our show, we're going to try to make sense of the lead up to that war the way Americans at the time would have made sense of it. Our story begins in the winter of 1860. Our last monthly paper announced the probable election of Abraham Lincoln and Hannibal Hamlin the Republican candidates for president and vice president of the United States. What was then only speculation and probability is now an accomplished fact. This is the lead editorial in the December 1860 edition of Douglas's Monthly. That's Douglas as in Frederick Douglass, the famous abolitionist who had himself escaped from slavery 22 years before. Ed, this was such a crucial election. Can you give us a little background on who was running, what were the parties, all that stuff? It's an amazing election. The future of the nation in the balance, and everybody knew it. The stage had been set, really, for over a decade as the Whig Party, which had been a strong national party tied to holding the country together, had disintegrated. The Democratic Party had broken apart between northern and southern factions. A new party, the Constitutional Union Party, had grown up trying to mediate between the North and the South. Also in the space the Whigs had left, the Republican Party emerges in the North that says that the territories may not be taken over by slaveholders. So Election Day comes. And what you find is that Stephen Douglas, sort of a moderate, and John Breckinridge, the strong pro-Southern candidate, split the votes of the big national party, the Democrats. The Constitutional Union Party wins lots of votes, especially in the Upper South. But Abraham Lincoln wins 40% of the vote, all that in the North. And with that percentage, he becomes president of the United States. So you have a new president. A brand new party, never in political power. And finally, in the South, some of the Democrats are saying, now let's start talking about secession. Unquestionably, secession, disunion, Southern Confederacy, and the like phrases are the most popular political watchwords of the cotton-growing states of the Union. Nor is this sentiment to be entirely despised. If Mr. Lincoln were really a friend to the abolition movement, instead of being its most powerful enemy, the dissolution of the Union might be the only effective mode of perpetuating slavery in the southern states. But the South has now no such cause for disunion. Now hold on. This is Abraham Lincoln he's talking about, the great emancipator. And Frederick Douglass is calling him the abolition movement's greatest enemy? 
And it's confusing, isn't it, Brian? Especially yeah. for you 20th century people. Yeah, yeah well, Come here's on. the thing, you know. So Abraham Lincoln really does hate slavery. He and the Republican Party say we are not going to allow slavery to expand into the territories to pollute the rest of the nation. But they do not think that slavery can be ended where it now exists. So from an abolitionist like Frederick Douglass's point of view, they cannot help but be ambivalent about someone who acknowledges the constitutional right of perpetual bondage. It's the same dilemma others have faced throughout our history. This is David Blight, a Civil War historian who's written a lot about Frederick Douglass. You advocate for something for perhaps all of your lifetime. Along comes a political persuasion or a movement or a party that kind of goes partway there. And sometimes you are most disgusted with those who seem to be on your side and yet won't act on it versus those you know are not on your side and will never act on it. With an abolition president, we should consider a successful separation of the slave from the free states a calamity greatly damaging to the prospects of our long enslaved, bruised, and mutilated people. But under what may be expected of the Republican Party, with its pledges to put down the slaves should they attempt to rise and to hunt them should they run away, a dissolution of the Union would be highly beneficial to the cause of liberty. What he wants to happen is an all-out break that forces some kind of organized military action against the South. He says that only then would slavery really, really be threatened. And he's actually saying to the secessionist here, you know, if you just back off and cool it and you stay in the Union, your godforsaken slave system is going to last a heck of a lot longer than if you bolt the Union. But he wants them to bolt. In truth, we really wish those brave, fire-eating, cotton-growing states would just now go at once outside the Union and set up for themselves. But no, cunning dogs, they will smother their rage. And after all the dust they can raise, they will retire within the Union and claim its advantages. Douglas actually predicts this over and over, that what will really happen will be yet another compromise, something on the lines of the Compromise of 1850, He sees this ultimately being assuaged by compromise, and that's his worst fear. You know, he he wants one thing, he expects another, he fears where this is going. But note how he says that what at least has happened, and this he celebrates, is that for the first time, American political culture was under the control of people who, to some degree, were threatening the future of slavery. For 50 years, the country has taken the law from the lips of an exacting, haughty, and imperious slave oligarchy. The masters of slaves have been masters of the republic. They were the president makers of the republic. Lincoln's election has broken their power. It has taught the North its strength and shown the South its weakness. More important still, it has demonstrated the possibility of electing, if not an abolitionist, at least an anti-slavery reputation to the presidency of the United States. Now, that sounds like such a half measure, but it meant a great deal to an abolitionist like Douglas. It's like this new order of things, a new order of events that is about to take place. The trouble is they just don't know where these events are yet going. 